Come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3. And verse 16 only. In fact, why don't we all read it out together? Hmm? Let's read it out, out loud together. Whatever version you've got or whatever perversion you've got uh, of the Scriptures, we'll just all read it out together. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. John 3.16 is beyond question the most well-known, the most loved, the most quoted scripture in the entire Bible. It is the Mona Lisa of art. It's the Everest of mountains. It is Beethoven's fifth of symphonies. It's the Swan Lake of ballet. I mean, it is everything. It's the Nessum Dorma of opera. In other words, it is unparalleled. It is unrivaled. It is incomparable. It is majestic and matchless. No text has led more men and women and boys and girls to Christ than this text, John 3, 16. And old Sidlow Baxter, in his own inimitable way, says of it, what the sun is to our solar system, John 3, 16 is in its relation to the Christian message. As Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and the minor planets and Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and faraway Neptune range their ceaseless rotation around the central magnet of fire and receive their illumination from it, so all the distinctive truths of redemption, the riches of divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, propitiation, reconciliation, justification, eternal salvation and glorification revolve around this supreme statement of God's redeeming love like lumps of silver in fallen man's dark sky. What a statement. A million sermons have been preached on it. Volumes have been written about it. It is inexhaustible in its scope, unfathomable in its depths, and unsearchable in its riches. Whenever the great American preacher D.L. Moody came to London, the great evangelist in the last century, whenever he came to London to hold his large crusades, a young English preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse uh, went to those crusades. And he was bold enough to go to D.L. Moody and say, Mr. Moody, if I ever come to America, can I preach in your church? And Moody readily agreed, thinking that he probably would never, ever come to America. But Moorhouse did go to America, and he did go to Chicago. And he went and he asked Mr. Moody, I've arrived, can I preach in your church? And so Moody, a man of his word, kept his word, and decided to let him preach for one evening. And he said, what harm could there be in this? Even if he makes a mess of it, I'll be there to rescue it. And so Henry Morehouse preached on that text, John three sixteen, And he preached on it so powerfully 
and so passionately about the love of God that Moody was moved to ask him to come back the next night and preach again. And he went back the next night and he preached on John 3.16. And again Moody was moved, says, will you come back tomorrow night? And every night for a week, Morehouse went back and he preached on the love of God from John 3.16 and Moody was overwhelmed. In fact, it was a life-changing, ministry-changing message that changed his ministry forever. And right at the very final service, young Henry Morehouse said, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you. Suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder. Suppose I could ascend that shining stairway until my feet stood on the sapphire pavements of the city of gold. Suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel who stands in the presence of God. Suppose I could say, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, Henry Morehouse became known as the man who moved the man who moved millions. The man who moved the man who moved millions. It has been said that this verse is built around ten words. God loved world Give, son, whosoever believes, perish, have, and life. Simple, isn't it? Now, you remember, was it last Sunday morning we preached on Jesus wept, which is the shortest verse in the Bible? Remember how we said that John's vocabulary was very small indeed? No more than 600 words which is the vocabulary of a seven-year-old child. It's not that he was stupid or anything, but he chose to use the simplest of words, and yet he could say the most profound and the deepest things imaginable. John Phillips says, If John's coins are few, their denomination is large. They are golden coins, royal sovereigns, the kind that you'd find only in a rich man's purse. And here are, within this verse, John's ten golden coins. And they have made us all very rich indeed, haven't they? They have saved us. John Phillips also said that the creative work of God is summed up in ten commandments in Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. He said the legislative work of God is summed up in Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And here in John 3.16, the redemptive work of God is summed up basically in ten words. And so we're going to have a look at this this morning. And what I plan to do is to do it in two parts. Uh, part one this morning, part two tonight. And the reason for that is because I don't want to rush it. 
and give you too much to chew on at the same time, but something to reflect about. And even if I'm a little bit shorter this morning than normal, that's fine, rather than trying to ram it all into one. So I hope you don't mind. I'm going to do it anyway, whether you mind or not. <laughs> I'm just being polite about that. <laughs> For God so loved the world. Now, for many people, including many Christians, there is a belief that persists of a vengeful, austere, hard-to-placate God who tries to hammer us into submission to His will and to His purpose that we may follow Him. And that in order to placate and pacify this angry God, that Jesus came to suffer in our place, to quell his anger against us, and to change his mind about us. Now I'm putting that in those words. You may not think of it in those words, but there is that belief that somehow we have come to understand. And while it is absolutely true that Jesus did come to suffer in our stead and to take the punishment for our sins in his own body on the tree, as Peter said, that is absolutely true. Yet, it was the Father who sent him. And we must never forget this. It was the Father who gave up his own Son for us. Jesus didn't have to to change the Father's mind about us. His mind was already made up. Are you with me? He loved us. For God so loved the world. Now listen, God just didn't fall in love with us after Jesus died for our sins. The reason Jesus died for your sins and my sins in the first place is because the Father already loved us. That's why he sent his son. Christ's work on the cross is the proof of God's love for us, not the cause of it. We'll say that again. Christ's work on the cross is the proof of God's love for us, not the cause of it. Because he loved, he gave. I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Somebody says that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And for God to love us, he had to demonstrate that love to us. And what greater demonstration of God's love to us than the giving of his own son. Now we must never separate the love of the Father for us and the love of the Son for us. And somehow we do it. Somehow we do it. We see this angry, vengeful God on one side and we see the lovely, humble, loving Jesus on the other side trying to placate God's anger against us and yet God loved us. He's angry at sin. And he's angry at the causes of it and he's angry at the consequences of it. But he loved us. He loved us that much. He was prepared to give his son to die for us. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. They were in it together. 
Nobody forced Jesus to come. He voluntarily came and voluntarily gave up his life for us. But it was the Father who gave him because he loves us. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the manner of God's loving. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What a great verse. The mystery of it. How could we ever understand why God loved us rebellious, evil, sinful people? Why would God, a holy God, love us? But he does. For God so loved the world, the fallen, the broken, sinful, rebellious, lost world of men and women just like you and me. Whenever Jesus was hung on the cross, you remember that Pilate, and we know that he did it as a spite against the Jews, as an insult against them. And he said, no, don't do this. And he says, what I've written, I've written. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he nailed it to Jesus' cross in three languages, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. And the Hebrew and the Greek and the Roman were the three great world cultures of Jesus' day. It encompassed all men all over the then known world. And little did Pilate know that what he was putting on that cross was so prophetic of the Son of God who did love the whole world, the Hebrew world, the Greek world, the Roman world, and every mix in between that. And he was the one who was going to die for the whole world. It represented all men of all ages, of all types. Jesus just didn't die for a nation. He just didn't die for a people. He just didn't die for only those who loved him. He died for the whole world. The lovely, the unlovable. The unlovely, the lovable, the unlovable. Those who loved him, those who spurned him. He died for them all. And that's the great message of the gospel, isn't it? That our Lord Jesus Christ died for you and he died for me. Augustine said that God loves each of us as if there was only one of us to love. Isn't that nice? God loves each of us as if there was only one of us to love. He loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If the world speaks of the breadth of God's love, then surely giving his son speaks of the depths of God's love. How can we ever begin to understand the anguish in the heart of the father when his own son was hanging on a cross becoming our sin-bearer for us. And at that moment when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
How could we ever begin to understand not only the anguish in the Son of God's heart, but in the Father's heart when he had to turn his face away and allow Jesus to suffer alone and to feel that separation from his Father? What anguish must have been in the Father's heart. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. How could we ever understand the mystery of that? What was going on in the heart of the Father when he had to turn his face away from his own son on the cross? God gave his own beloved son didn't offer a creature, didn't offer an angel or a seraph. He gave us his own son. Nothing shows the depths of God's love for us more than that. He could not demonstrate his love anymore. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? He who did not spare his own son. What a moment that must have been for the father, never mind the son, when Jesus was on that cross and not spared any cruelty or any pain or any humiliation. Can you imagine the creator of the ends of the earth coming to his creation and his creation puts him on a cross naked before all men, battered and bruised and whipped and spat upon and his beard plucked out? And he did that for you and he did that for me for our sins. And the Father had to, as it were, stand and watch that and not intervene and turn away. What anguish must have been in his heart. So let's understand today The love of God is no different in the Father's heart than the Son's heart for you and me. It's not that the Son had to coax the Father to love us. It's not that He had to go to the cross to make the Father love us. The Father always loved us. That's why He gave His Son. I know that's simple, but yet it's profound, isn't it? Will we ever really fully understand that? I don't think so. This is why I have to accept it by faith. And say, God, I can't fully understand the depth of your love towards me, but I receive it and I accept it because it's grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's a gift of God for us. And he did not spare his own son, delivered him up for us all. We know that Jesus went voluntarily. We know that he allowed men to lead him. 
could have called legions of angels, but he chose not to because of his love for you and me. God couldn't send a finite creature to do an infinite work. The work that he was going to do in the lives of men and women was infinite. That would last for all eternity. And no mere creature, not even the greatest man on earth, would be enough, good enough, and able enough to take away our sins. So God sends His only Son. Not a created creature, but begotten of the Father. And so He had to be divine for His sacrifice to be good enough. It had to be divine. He had to be divine. In verse 14 Previous to verse 16, which we didn't read, he calls himself the Son of Man. That was his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. But in verse 16, and in fact, he calls himself the Son of God. He gave his only begotten Son, referring to himself as the Son of God. And so he's both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He's both man and God. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Who can understand it? Who can understand that Almighty God became man? Not just for three and a half years, but whenever he went back to heaven, he still retained that human body to identify fully with us. Yes, it's a glorified body. It's a resurrection body. (laughs) It's a mighty, miracle body. But it's still human. Still got the nail scars in the hand. This is why Paul said in Philippians 2, 5 and 8, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. No other payment would be good enough. No other one would be able enough. Only his own son. He had to bankrupt heaven to save us. What does the song say? The darling of heaven crucified. We sing that in here, don't we? It's a lovely line, that isn't. Because The son was the father's darling. The darling of heaven crucified. Would you give your child for someone? Hmm? I don't think so. 
that the Father gave his only begotten Son. Imagine if you were a pagan and you had no access to the Bible. You believe that God exists, but you know nothing of what the Bible says about him. You may believe like the Romans and the Greeks and their mythological gods who are capricious and cruel and vindictive and unmerciful and uncompassionate. And if you believe that, how would this gospel sound to you? If for the first time you heard about the one true and living God who loved you so much that he was prepared to give his son to die the most horrible death on a cross to save your eternal soul. Would that not be good news? Would that not be the best news that you've ever heard in your entire life? And that is why, friends, today, when you preach the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel, it truly is good news. They've never heard anything like it. Our trouble is we have heard it a million times. And we've almost become immune to the message. Which will be a greater condemnation for us if we don't receive Christ. Because we've heard so many times. I, I wish I had... I just don't have the, the facility to play this yet. Uh, Johnny and I is going to get something rigged up some of these days. But there's a YouTube clip and I would encourage you to look at it. And it's regarding the Jesus video. Which, by the way, is the most viewed film in history. The most viewed film in history is the Jesus film. Which is Jesus video we call it. And there's a, a tribe in Ethiopia speak the Gamo language. So if you go to YouTube and you put in Ethiopian Gamo language and see what comes up. And there's lots of clips. But there's one in particular about a couple in America. And they personally paid to sponsor the showing of the Jesus film to a tribe in Ethiopia and it's outside, a sheet is put up between two trees, it's night time, and hundreds of them come out to watch it for the first time. But this God they know nothing about. But this Son of God they know nothing about. And it's fascinating to watch it. Because whenever you see them watching this so intently, and you know what's happening just by watching their reaction. And it's the reaction that you need to see. Because when it comes to the part where he's being crucified, they're crying. And some of them's hiding. They can hardly bear to look. And they're crying tears. They're so moved to think that God had a son and he gave him for us to die that way. Even the death of the cross. And then it moves on. And you know what has just happened because 
suddenly it all changes and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're cheering and they're clapping because Jesus is risen from the dead. <laughs> and they're so excited that he's alive. And if we showed that to you, you would just sit there looking at it. The glazed look, as if to say, so what? I know that. Well, maybe all of us wouldn't. Maybe none of you would. I don't know. Should have showed it some night without telling you that, just to see the reaction. But for people who doesn't know, who has never heard, it's good news. It's the best news. It's the greatest news they've ever heard in their entire lives. And they respond so easily and so readily. Never underestimate the power of the simple gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Tonight, we'll look at the rest of it. But whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's one of the most awful words that Jesus ever used. Perish. It is almost beyond our comprehension. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God the Bible says if Jesus had to pay such a price to save us what was he saving us from if it cost that much makes you think doesn't it well we'll think more tonight I could have pressed on for another half an hour but I think it's better just a bit at a time with this Aren't you glad that God loves you that much? Doesn't that just make you want to love him more and serve him more and follow him more? Can he not demand that from us? <laughs> Yet he just says, look, that's how much I loved you. Now come and serve me, follow me. Be my child. And then I'll show you love that you never knew before. Because <laughs> that's just the start of it. And as I've often said, it's going to take all eternity of eternities for God to express His full love and His full plan for all of our lives. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Isn't God good to us? A few moments, Ken's going to come now. He's going to lead us in communion. Man's going to serve us. And what better opportunity this morning than around this table just to personally thank him from the depth of your heart. I know that we go through our day many times and we thank God for different things, but why don't we just consciously, personally thank him for saving us, for changing us, for making us new creatures in Christ. He deserves at least that, doesn't he? Just to be thankful. Yeah.